part 53. You're visiting with us this morning. Just nudge the person beside you and say to them, did he say 53? You could do it quicker. It's just that I have to teach this until I start to get it. And so you just have to follow along with me. Next week we'll finish chapter 12 and then the last chapter of the book. Entering the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the title of today's teaching. What a striking text we have. As we were singing, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Remember that phrase? I thought of this text. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For for they could not endure the order that was given, quote, If even a beast touches the mountain, let alone the people, they're included too. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, so you have not come. That's how that screen started. You have not come to that. But, but you have come, so here's the contrast. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, he's writing to Christians in the New Covenant. The heavenly Jerusalem Read Revelation 20. There's no temple. John sees the Jerusalem coming down. And he says specifically, there's no temple there. The Lamb is the temple. To the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn. Interesting. Who are enrolled in heaven. And to God. Notice new covenant but he's still the judge that doesn't disappear the judge of all and and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect which takes the sting out of that the judge of all and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a text. Let's pray. Give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Hearts to feel what you want us to feel. Wills to obey what you call us to this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see what our writer is doing as he begins to, he's starting his wrap-up of this lengthy letter to these persecuted Hebrew believers. 
we've gone chapter by chapter unpacking all the theology of the new covenant. And then just in chapter 11, the very beginning of chapter 12, but mostly the end of chapter 11, he's, he's encouraging them um, through the way God can discipline and mature even through difficult circumstances of life so that 12:11 he can bring the peaceable fruit of righteousness out of the trials that they're in it's one thing to believe that when you're singing and worshiping it's another thing you know when life isn't going the way you yet think it ought to be going and God can bring a peaceable fruit of righteousness out of their present trials but there's, there's one more thing he wants to place before them, and it relates to our text today. When the journey is hard, it helps to remember the destination. So in today's text, this tricky text, our writer, he reminds his readers, and he reminds you, and he reminds me, that we didn't just sign up on some kind of membership card or doctrinal statement or join an organization when we profess loyalty to Christ as our Redeemer and Lord. He's, he's trying to show them they've come into something bigger than that. There's a bigger picture, though not yet visible. It's easy to forget that, especially in the heat of difficult circumstances. And our writer's way of making his point in this text, I think you'll see it, is to paint this study in contrasts, particularly for these Hebrew believers. He wants to show the folly of of turning back to the old covenant through Moses and the law. He wants to show how foolish that would be by contrasting that with the more glorious covenant through Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's what he wants to do in this text. Point number one. Apart from the mediating work of Jesus Christ, there is only one revelation of God possible for people like we. Look at 18 to 21 and and pretend you haven't read this dozens of times. For you have not come to what may be touched, so he's dealing with physical things, external things, a a blazing fire, darkness and gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Why did they do that? Well, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight Moses. Moses said, I I tremble with fear. The event, of course, is the giving of the law up on top of the mount. But don't rush over those words. Words, darkness, gloom, tempest, fire, terrifying. Now you would think if these were coming from Jesus in the book of Matthew, you'd read and say, oh, it's Gehenna he's talking about. 
This isn't a description of hell. This was the presence of God. And it, to me, it begs this question. God could have spoken to these people in any way he chose. Are we agreed? How many say God could have done it any way he wanted to do it? All in favor? It's passed. He could. Why does he want to be seen like this? This is the very first time we have record of God speaking with a voice. The very first time in the whole Bible. Why would he not want to appear more approachable? Why wouldn't he want to appear more lovable? I mean, wouldn't that, remember the shack? Like, wouldn't that Aunt Jemima kind of picture of God? Wouldn't that play better than this? I'm convinced there are two reasons for the nature of God's appearance on the mountain, the giving of the law. One we'll deal with now, and the other I'm going to return to. You won't remember, but I'm going to return to at the close of the teaching. Here's reason number one. God reveals himself in a way that establishes forever that he is always a threat when approached by sinful people on the basis of law and merit and qualification. God is trying his best to make them understand that you, you really can't get to him through your own religious devotion. And this revelation of God to his people in the manifestation of his law, it, it removes, removes forever the idea that God is just kind of sentimentally soft when it comes to the kind of holiness he requires and accepts. As long as you're sincere, he just, it's group hug. That's what God does. There has arisen, I know not from where in the scriptures, there has arisen this notion that God can be approached by everyone in their own way, simply because he is automatically embracing of everyone in his very nature. We've grown accustomed to thinking of divine forgiveness as just rooted naturally in the character of Father God, apart from any mention whatsoever of the atoning cross of Christ. Here are some words I read this week to the staff in our devotional time Tuesday morning. I read these words. They're from Oswald Chambers in his classic work, My Utmost for His Highest. You form your own opinion about that. I've, I've said publicly, I, I find parts of that book I read and every day they speak to me. I find other times Oswald Chambers, I read them and I, and I think to myself, what? Am I just dense? Like what, what are we talking about here? But whenever, he, whenever Oswald Chambers deals with the cross of Christ, I've noticed this. It's stellar. I read these words. Never build your case for forgiveness on the idea that God is our Father 
and he will forgive us because he loves us. That contradicts the revealed truth of God in Christ Jesus. It makes the cross unnecessary and redemption much ado about nothing. God forgives sin only because of the death of Christ. God can forgive people in no other way than by the death of his son. Take that home with you. Look carefully at this revelation of God on Mount Sinai. Our writer of Hebrews, he knows what he's doing in citing this account. The whole point, of course, is the mountain is completely off limits to all the people, even the animals. No one dare touch it on penalty of death. So, so this whole account, notice, this whole account isn't crafted to reveal closeness to God. This whole account is crafted to reveal distance from God. Separation. Sinners dare not draw near. God is deliberately revealing himself as as a threat to any who would make approach through works of law. That's what that manifestation of God on Sinai is all about. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, sorry, 20 and 21. There it is. For they could could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it is to be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight. Moses said, I I tremble with fear. What what sobering words. And what we're forced to conclude, remember we said God could reveal himself any way he wanted. So what we're forced to conclude is this is God's design. God wants them trembling in fear. Why? Well, take Jesus Christ, God the Son's redeeming work, and of course, after the law, there's the whole setup of the tabernacle and the sacrifices. Significantly, after you give the law, you better, you better tell people how to get forgiveness, right? Take Jesus Christ, God the Son's redeeming work out of the picture, and this is done in virtually every religion on the planet, And this is the only revelation of God you have left. That's the point. This is as God wants it to be. Everything we know about the biblical God, the one revealed in the scriptures, is revealed to make the cross of Christ central in our spiritual pursuits. We have gospel access to God or we have no access to God. That's what that manifestation, gloom, darkness, tempest, terrifying. That's what that's all about. What, you you think you can just waltz up the mountain? Point number two. 
There is no decree from God that has transforming power to win our fallen hearts. Nineteen and twenty. The voice, there it is. This was heard. A voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's easy to forget that God didn't just carve the commandments into stone with his finger. That's true, but that's not all that happened. We know that because as Moses summed up the second time the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, he he closes his address to the people with these words of reminder. You can see them in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of, there it is, the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with with a loud voice. He also, he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Moses is the speaker. We need to pay attention to that. One could easily get the impression the real need today is simply, well, if we only knew God existed, if he only communicated with us, if only he would reveal himself, if he would talk to us, well, then we'd all know what life was all about, what we were supposed to be doing. Everything would be good, after all. I mean, here we are. We're all kind of seekers of truth. Now, look at our text in Hebrews and its Old Testament roots in Deuteronomy that I just read to you. Because what you have is, God speaks, God speaks at length to these people. I mean, just think about that for a minute. He actually utters sentences, punctuated words in the specific language of the listeners. And the people go to Moses, make him stop. Make him stop talking. What's going on here? People tell Moses to make God stop talking to them. They hear, they hear clear, loud, verbal, comprehensible words from God. And, and all of those listening, all of those hearing those words in their language, all of them over the age of about 20 will still rebel against everything God told them and die in the wilderness shortly. I guess we need more than just hearing God speak. You can see how this point of rejecting the words, you can see how it kind of follows logically under the first point, that frightful manifestation that God gives. People people always think they want to hear from God when they forget about their sin and when they forget about God's undiluted holiness. Holiness. 
It's easy to imagine we want to find God when we forget the dangerous distance between the real God and our fallen, proud hearts. To seek for an encounter with God that is loving and inspiring and helpful and in any way transforming, to look for that outside of Jesus Christ is to look for grace where there's nothing but judgment. To look for safety where there's nothing but danger. So, so in the deepest sense, in the deepest sense, every revelation from God, including this one on the mountain, every revelation from God is gracious. God is never evolving. You'll hear this a lot. God is never evolving from wrathful to gracious, mean to loving. But all of these old covenant manifestations of God are gracious only in the sense that they're all designed to drive sinners to the cross of Christ, to look for sacrifice, to look for pardon. And God knows, God knows we won't discover our deep need for grace without his help. And God never deviates from that plan. Point number three. Only through the glory of the new covenant can people be brought to dwell joyfully with a holy God. It's in verses 22 and 23 of our text. So, so you haven't come to, and he, he's gone through all those things. You didn't come to that. You didn't come to that mountain as he writes to these Christian believers with the fire terrifying, the voice they begged it to stop, the darkness, the clouds. You have come to, he talks about a couple things. Mount Zion, what are we going to do with this? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, there's more. I think it's obvious that there are blessings promised through this heavenly Mount Zion in our text. And this heavenly Jerusalem that were never fulfilled in the Old Testament. I mean, you'll find references. Zion, read the Psalms. So much about Zion, Mount Zion, coming to Zion. Heavenly Jerusalem. I've come to the conclusion that those are, those are Old Covenant realities but realities like the sacrifices themselves that were pictures they were they were previews of something that was partially revealed but was going to be one day in more depth and more vividness and more color completely fulfilled through the kingdom that Jesus Christ would purchase through his shed blood and so when you hear pastor chris or anyone else read from the psalms of the blessings and promises made to Zion or the people of God. You need to remember that while they did and do apply to Israel, they are more gloriously and completely fulfilled through Jesus Christ to all God's people. That's why, that's why Paul can say something like this. Paul can say, for all the promises of God, 
All of them. Find their yes in him. That's Christ. This is the divinely intended will of God for you and for me because through Christ, we're the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of all the blessings promised to Abraham. You can see that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, Look at this. You're Abraham's offspring. And heirs, according to promise. Which promise? Well, the ones given to Abraham. They weren't just for Abraham and his descendants. In fact, a lot of his descendants didn't qualify. That's what Paul will talk about in, in, in Romans. With all that in mind... Look again with fresh eyes. Remember that when I was talking about Zion, the blessings of Zion, Mount Zion, the people of Zion. When you read about those phrases in these glorious songs of praise and worship throughout the Old Testament, remember those, remember those verses that we read about how they're fulfilled in the people of God through Christ. So as you think of that, now, our writer says that these people, 1222, they've come to Mount Zion, to Zion. These New Testament Christians. What's that mean? Well, we're reminded of a couple things. Let me just point out a couple of them. Salvation comes from Zion. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Remember? Remember Mount Sinai? Remember? Darkness, gloom, tempest, fire, terror. 18 to 21 of our text. You didn't come there. He says, you've come to Mount Zion. What comes from Mount Zion? Salvation. (laughs) Salvation comes from Mount Zion. What else? Well, we're reminded joy comes out of Zion. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. Our writer picks up this image of joy. Our writer of Hebrews to these new covenant Christians. Joy, the application of redemption through the new covenant. The joy people crave as created beings still carrying around this bent, twisted image of God that can only be found in approaching their creator through the redeemer, Jesus Christ. You'll never get there through the law. For, I have to hurry. There is a promised communion and fellowship beyond the reality of physical death. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And we're immediately brought to this picture of life and 
communion unerased by physical death. So there is a conscious and a populated gathering. A coming together. A celebrative gathering. So so this is the opposite of the darkness and the loneliness described. And, And one can only imagine what this might have meant. You have to keep, I know it's hard, but you have to keep earlier passages in mind. Think what this would mean to people. Our writer has just reminded them of people who were 1137, who were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, 39, not receiving the deliverance they expected. So these people witnessed their loved ones executed for faith in Jesus. That's what they witnessed. And our writer says, when, when you came to Zion, when you came to Christ, there's a gathering. That these people are off the physical scene. But there's a gathering. There's a consciousness. There's a reunion. Such is the nature of the assembly of the firstborn, he calls it. We know who the firstborn is. We know from various passages in the New Testament. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All who are in Christ have the glory of sharing in his eternal life and restored treasured fellowship. Something else that's even nicer, point number five. God is still the same judge... But he smiles eternally on those in Christ Jesus. It's in verses 23 and 24. And to God, the judge of all. Interesting, eh? That doesn't change. And to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. Just spirits. It's not the resurrected body yet. Spirits made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant... To to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a lot there. Let me just hop through some of the points. A, God is still the unchanging judge. But we are seen in the perfection of Jesus Christ. So it's important to remember, this is not a different God God stays the same. It's our spirits that are changed. Made perfect. There's a a spiritual power in the new covenant work of Christ that accomplishes what that law on Sinai and that terrifying voice that they begged not to speak anymore. There's something through the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit and his shed blood applied to our hearts that, that brings about a righteousness that this never could. And so he writes to these persecuted Hebrew believers and he says, seriously, you want to go back to that? B, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks better hope than the shed blood of Abel. Hard to know what all's playing out here. We know the account of the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. 
that blood, so the, the text says it, it cried out from the ground. And it was a cry of, well, it was an ugly scene, a cry of, 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 of jealousy and envy and hatred and vengeance. Our writer knows these Hebrew Christians will know the story of Cain and Abel. And he uses that. And he says, he says the sprinkled blood of Jesus shed on the cross, he said that it, it's, it speaks too. There are some similarities. The blood of Christ and the blood of Abel. Jesus too was murdered by wicked men. Jesus too died a death he didn't deserve. Jesus too died a violent death. Again, there are similarities, but... But there's also a glorious difference. Christ's shed blood speaks of forgiveness, not vengeance. It speaks of pardon, not just murder. It speaks of atonement, not just martyrdom. And it it still speaks, still speaks today. The same message to you. If, if you want to try to leave this sanctuary and think I'm going to be just as good a person as I can possibly be, you go ahead and you just slug up that mountain and there's nothing up the top but fire and loneliness and judgment and darkness and gloom. You will never get to God that way. Or you can come to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The one who died for your sins. And when you leave this world, should you die before Jesus comes, there will be a spirit around the throne, your spirit, believe it or not, and it's going to be made perfect through Christ's shed blood. No religious system can give you that. Last point, six. Give me six minutes. I want to just share with you something I learned, I think. It's not original to me, and I want to tell you where I found it. Point number six. God's appearance on Sinai is a reminder of his future appearance as judge of all who reject his grace in Jesus Christ. Do you see 18 to 21? I've already read it to you. You have not come to what may be touched, a a blazing fire, darkness and gloom and a tempest. And I didn't underline these words before. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They couldn't endure. Moses said, I'm just, I'm trembling. So for those who remember all the way back to the beginning of this teaching, I said there were two reasons for the nature of God's manifestation at the giving of the law. The first was, he intentionally, I believe, intentionally reveals his unapproachability on the basis of merit. Here's the second reason. His appearance was designed in his sovereign plan to prefigure his response to all who reject Christ at the final judgment. 
all the dozens of commentaries I've been studying for this series, I read this. The only place I saw this was volume 7. Yes, I read through 6. I'm on the 7th volume of studies by the Puritan John Owen. And he wrote those works in 1854. And he specifically talks about that phrase, the sound of a trumpet. I didn't highlight it in verse 19. But there is no mention of any person. Go back over the account. There's no person blowing a trumpet around the mountain with the giving of the law. So this wasn't something humanly sounded. And I think Owen is right. I don't think it presses things too far at all to see how this lines up with almost Almost every prophetic passage in the New Testament, you've seen it as we studied Revelation Sunday nights, where the second coming and the final judgment are mentioned, and there's consistently this idea of a trumpet sounding. And so we have as powerful a description as I know of. I believe in God's plan. Right from the very beginning. To show exactly what it is like to face a good, holy God apart from the atoning work of Christ. And you feel like you're reading the book of Revelation, don't you? Darkness, fire, gloom, terrifying, Moses trembling. We're forced to face the truth of divine revelation from start to finish. We're forced to face the truth of divine revelation. Reject grace in God the Son. And there's nothing but wrath left. How else could God show it? And so God in his, in his severe mercy has made this warning just as vivid and as plain As it can possibly be. God intends to show what it's like to face a holy God outside of redemption. And there's nothing pretty about it. And he does it. You're like me. I mean, I don't think I did anything horrible this past week. And I'm a reasonably nice person. And, and you, can, you can, it's not spoken out loud. We know better doctrinally, but it, it just gets quietly assumed that, well, I, I'm a Christian and God must be reasonably pleased with me. We don't have a good, accurate assessment of our hearts apart from the, sp- the sprinkled blood. I'm ordained, you know. You're a teacher, you're a religious leader, you're a clergy, you're... And, and apart from the sprinkled blood of Christ, let me tell you what God looks like when you see him. So, I don't know about you, I, that's a complicated text. It's not delightful preaching. But you come to the conclusion that uh, we really do need Jesus, don't we, church? That never goes away. Like, that never goes away. Let's pray together.